She was this gun-toting, whiskey-drinking broad. The super epic fucking broad. She was a pioneer in the industry. She's also so famous and so controversial. So controversial. So she's kind of a big fucking deal. Her story is so incredible. She belongs on this podcast because she's a broad you should know. Hello and welcome to Broads You Should Know, the podcast about amazing and noteworthy women from history. I'm your host, Sarah Gorski, and today we are continuing our series on women they called witches. We started off the whole series at the beginning of October with a little bit of a summary recap of the damage of witchcraft trials throughout history. And then our first episode, we did a callback to our episode on Half-Hanged Mary. The woman who was accused of witchcraft twice was hung and lived to tell the tale of it. Then we took a deep dive into the Salem witch trials. The real reason for the witch fever that took hold of the community and all of the women that were executed as a result of all of those accusations of witchcraft. And then last week we looked at Hypatia, very old school broad, lived right after the time the Library of Alexandria burned. She lived in Alexandria. She was an absolute genius and she was murdered in the streets by Christians, supposedly for witchcraft. So her story and her death, we dig a deep dive into that. And today, we are circling the witch narrative over to one of the most voluminous times and locations of witch trials in the history of the world, and that is Scotland in the 16th century. Beatrix Leslie, sometimes called Beatrix Leslie of Dalkeith, is our primary focus today, and she was a victim of what is known as the Great Scottish Witch Hunt of 1661 to 1662. You see, it's important to note the years, actually, because Scotland did not have just one Great Witch Hunt. There were at least three. If you Google Great Scottish Witch Hunt, you'll see one in... 1590 to 1591, 1597, 1628 to 1631, over 660 people were publicly accused of witchcraft. We do not know exactly how many people were executed during this particular hunt, but there was an English naturalist named John Ray that reported that 120 people were burned during his visit to Scotland. I couldn't find a source that told me how long John Ray was there, but 120 is still a remarkably high number and at no other time in Scottish history, except possibly, apparently, the witch hunt of 1597, also prolific, um, were so many people accused of witchcraft within such a brief period of time. And it is hardly a surprise, at least on this podcast, that... Of the accusations in this specific great hunt, 84% of the accused were women. Historians have been able to identify common markers amongst the accused women. Often they were midwives or healers, 
whose medical skills and knowledge were easily aligned with sorcery, obviously. Many were widows who were old and poor and reported to be, quote, eccentric and bothering their neighbors a lot. As we saw in Salem, a good number of the accused had previously been suspected of and sometimes even prosecuted for moral deviance, such as swearing on the Sabbath and having sex before marriage and sexual promiscuity, especially with English soldiers who were pretty reviled at this time in Scottish history. And even though most of the accused women were quite old at the time of the accusations and the trials, these crimes of their youth were still cause enough for their prosecution and death in this absolutely insane time period. And poor Beatrix Leslie. Well, Beatrix was almost all of the above. I didn't find any research about her being particularly promiscuous, and it seems like her husband was still alive, so she wasn't a widow. But at the time of her witch trial, she was a midwife and healer and 84 years old and as eccentric as hell. In 1661, at this time, Leslie lived in Blackcote in the parish of New Battle, Midlothian, which is about eight miles southeast of Edinburgh. I looked it up. And there was this, this particular area of the country was where much of the great witch hunt was focused on in this time period. And I am bummed to say that there's very little information about Beatrix's life besides what I'm going to give you here. Like, we don't even know if she and her husband had kids. There's no record of her life outside of the trials. But we also have to remember at this era, not many people had reading and writing skills. The court proceedings as an official arm of the government, were very well documented, but very little else was. And, and official documents, often at this time period, that was when people would, you know, put their mark on a piece of paper, but they didn't actually have a signature, and they didn't really know how to even read the contract. So uh, amidst the flurry of many other accusations at this moment in time, charges of malefice, which is evil harm, and demonic witchcraft are brought against Beatrix. And the primary accusation was that two local girls had pissed off Beatrix, and she used witchcraft to collapse the roof of a coal pit onto these girls, killing them. Of course, during the court proceedings, her midwifery was brought into question. Apparently, she used a knife and salt in a protective ritual during childbirth. The fans of the Catholic Church were not fans of such historically druidic practices, I am guessing. And I've already said that Beatrix was known to be eccentric. She was also kind of crabby. She had fought with some of her neighbors and people in the community. So, of course, all of Beatrix's enemies were eager to come forward in her trial. Some of her neighbors reported that she was very argumentative, that she would quote, utter curses during disputes, and that after cursing, some of the women she was fighting with claimed that they suffered harm and loss of some kind. Then, of course, there's William Young and Agnes Atchison. Beatrix had midwifed for them previously, but at some point they had a big falling out, and the couple testified that they were terrified of Beatrix after this falling out, both of them had had nightmares that Beatrix was devouring them. After a particularly bad 
fight, according to Agnes, quote, that same very night, the said William Young awakened out of his sleep in a great affrightment and sweat, crying out that she with a number of cats were devouring him, end quote. Then we enter into Beatrix's story, one of the greatest real-life villains I have ever read about in my research for this podcast, the famous witch pricker John Kincaid. <laughs> this dude, my friends, was a professional witch hunter. He was literally paid money, and I'm sure chickens and other things that suffice for payment back then, to come to these trials and search for evidence that the accused were witches. What kind of evidence, I hear you asking me? Well, as I indicated in his famous title, he literally poked the accused with needles. He would look for areas of discoloration on the skin or moles or whatever else could be possibly construed as a devil's mark or a witch's teat. We talked about that in the Salem episode. And if he did not cause the skin to bleed when he poked them with the needles, or if there was no reaction to pain, then it was absolute proof that the accused was a witch. And his testimony would make or break these cases. There are significant records, court documents, etc., of his having been hired. Uh, sometimes he was hired to make sure the accused were found guilty. And then sometimes also the richer people in the area, the rich fucks, would hire him to prove that they were innocent. And in a few cases that were documented, he proved to be a bit of a cheat. Even, like, he was not even very subtle about it. He would get hired to do a, a not guilty verdict, but then he would declare them guilty, and he would still get all the money and run away, and the accused would be, you know, murdered for his uh, testimony, his guilty testimony. In Newcastle in 1649, he was paid 20 shillings for each witch that he identified. That same year in Aberdeenshire... At the parish at Dunfermline, they paid him 20 mercs for pricking a Bessie Morton, who was then convicted and executed. And of course, his room and board were also paid by the local officials. He also, that same year, got a payment of six pounds, six Scottish pounds, from the Burnt Castle estate for pricking Margaret Dunholme, and got an additional payment of three Scottish pounds to cover the cost of him and his manservants, food and wine. He made quite the living off of this invented job. By 1659, 38 people were executed for witchcraft in that specific area. 18 of them, who lived specifically in East Lothian, the area he's known to be from, majority of them had been pricked by John Kincaid himself. He is like a very primary figure in all of these trials. So when Beatrix's case is tried... Kincaid is the local go-to expert. He isn't the only guy who did this, by the way. There was another prominent one named John Dick, and historians name a few others, too. Um, obviously, there was money to be made in identifying witches in this time period. And uh, these assholes just jumped right on board. 
So anyway, the court records show that Kincaid investigated Beatrix with at least two ordeals. First, he pricked her with needles in several places. Then he subjected her to something called the Byricht, wherein Beatrix was forced to touch the corpse of the alleged victims. And if the corpse started bleeding again, the accused was found guilty. And the court records in Beatrix's case specifically mention that the two girls who were killed when the coal roof fell down, they only bled when Beatrix was made to touch their bodies. It is very likely Beatrix was subjected to more than just these two ordeals. In fact, commonly during these witch trials, as we saw with Salem, the accused were flat out tortured until they confessed. And so it was with 84-year-old Beatrix, who eventually confesses to meeting the devil twice, once in the shape of a brown dog and once as a young man, agreeing to be his servant and being given a new name, Bold Leslie. She also did claim not to have renounced her baptism, though. I'm sure she was hoping that that would be enough to not be completely condemned by the court. Uh, But her, unfortunately, her confession really sealed the deal and she was found guilty in order to be executed. Her trial had begun on July 20th, 1661, and the verdict was rendered August 3rd, 1661. So just like a week and a half, two weeks later, She was actually tried at the same time with five other women and they all were found guilty and she was strangled and burned with the rest of the women that she was on trial with. They did not apparently hang them. They burned them here in Scotland. I think we said that in the Salem episode. So I'm wondering, as I'm doing this research, how the fuck did all this shit happen? That's the real question of this whole series. How did the witch trials happen? How were so many people accused and killed for witchcraft accusations? So I found a little bit of research that helps explain it a bit. Uh, In Scotland, the passing of the Witchcraft Act of 1563 made witchcraft or consulting with witchcraft and witches capital offenses. That is a British law. It was passed under Mary, Queen of Scots. But at this period of time, Scotland is still heavily under the control of the English government. And so the laws cross over. And as a result of this official piece of legislature, this law, today it's estimated that four to 6,000 people were tried for witchcraft, and more than 1,500 people were executed, approximately 75% of them being women. And this law was in effect a long time. It wasn't until 1736 that that Witchcraft Act was repealed. It's also worth mentioning a huge part of the witch craze apparently had also been stirred up by the king himself at the time, uh, who apparently thought witches conjured up a storm to stop the boats and trying to prevent his marriage. Fuck that dude, man. I think it was Charles II. I couldn't find the exact passage when I went back through my notes after I had finished reading, so I, I could be wrong. But fuck whichever king that was. Witches were not trying to stop you from getting married, dude. Um, there are a few other reasons 
that I found in the research that attributed specifically to the witch hunt of 1661 to 1662, one of them is that in the decade before this, the English government had had a really tight leash on the court system. They had kind of disbanded the local Scottish courts, and they sent English representatives into the court system to kind of preside over all of the legal proceedings. And there were a bunch of rules from the English about what counted in which trials, like what counted as evidence, what evidence was good enough for a guilty verdict, and even what kind of accusation was good enough to be taken seriously by the court. So in this time period when the the English have kind of commandeered the court system in Scotland, a whole bunch of lowlifes wanted to accuse witches, but they couldn't, or the the accusations were found not guilty because of this English court system. So when a little bit later, the court system was basically restored to local Scottish governance, there was like a huge backlog of people's personal vendettas that rushed to the forefront because suddenly they were allowed to accuse witches again. Uh, most certainly... And uh, this is, I'm sure, obvious. John Kincaid and these other professional witch prickers were a huge cause of the witch insanity across these several decades. Them, quote, finding so many witches that then those accused and found guilty would confess to being part of a larger network of witches. It doesn't matter to them. You know, never mind that these confessions were all under duress and under torture, but all of these confessions, um, they got not only the local, like, peons, but also the elites in the area really riled up. Everyone started to accuse everyone, and these rich elites were very eager to prove that they themselves weren't witches. And there was a lot of money exchanging because of all of these goings on. So the government, the Scottish government and the king's government, they call it, was ultimately paying for all of these trials. Lots of money was flowing for all of this glut of witch trials. It is also worth mentioning here that in this period of time in Scotland, if you couldn't tell already, there's lots of turmoil going on. And I, I'm not going to go into all of the ex- the huge extent of political things that are happening in this period of time. It's kind of like an episode in and of itself and one that like doesn't even belong on this podcast at this moment, at least. Um, but there were some quotes from the time period. Uh, one of them was, quote, Scotland's condition for the time is not good. Exhausted in money, dead in trade, the taxes near doubled since the 6th of May without all law nor any appearance of any in haste. And there's another quote, uh, quote, because the laws are now silent, this sin that is witchcraft becomes daily more frequent, end quote. So things are going badly in Scotland and people wanted to blame someone for all of their troubles. And who better to blame than an 84-year-old midwife named Beatrix Leslie, who birthed babies the old way and who was crabby with her neighbors. How the fuck did this particular witch hunt end? Uh, I think it's relevant to mention how how the madness was brought to a halt. Um, Quite frankly, the volume of witch accusations and trials became kind of unsustainable for the government. 
like I said, all that money was being paid for these trials to happen. Uh, and also by the spring of 1662, the Scottish courts, which are called the Privy Council, by the way, were starting to be a little more skeptical about the accusations. They'd been paying these record amounts of money, and so many people were being found guilty and executed, but they were seeming more and more innocent. They had more blood on their hands. They didn't feel like everything was right here. And so the Privy Council on April 10th, 1662, issues a new order which says that a suspected witch could not be arrested without a warrant from the council, the justice, the general, or his deputies, or from the sheriff, justices of the peace, steward, bailey of regality, or magistrates of the borough where the suspected witch resided. This order also prohibited prick torture, except by order of the council. And, here's the kicker, it forbade the use of any unlawful means to extract confessions. And then, to prove their point that they were very serious about this new order, the Privy Council also literally imprisons John Kincaid and John Dick for their activities as prickers. And this order almost brings the witch halt to a complete craze. A few months after issuing the order, the Privy Council granted its last commission of 1662, and during the next two years, it granted only three more. And it would be a, the real turning point in the history of Scottish witchcraft trials. After 1662, there's a general decline in all of the witchcraft prosecutions until finally the very last witch execution, which was in 1727. And that, my friends, is the story of Beatrix Leslie, the 84-year-old midwife who wasn't really well-liked by her neighbors and former clients. I keep thinking I'll, I'll want to say something profound at the end of these episodes, but it's, it's kind of more of the same. The things I've said already the last two weeks, is the incredible happenings of these trials, of the evidence issued and of the guilty verdicts and all of it being legal, being paid for by the government, by the king, and these women and men too, dying for it, dying for these accusations, dying for these crabby neighbors who wanted a reason to satiate their frustrations about how life was going. It is always distressing to find how official all of these happenings were in the time periods that they occurred. And as we're nearing the end of this mini-series on witches, you know, I am always searching for what is the thing we can learn from this period of history? What can we bring forward? And I think for me right now, I just see over and over again how just because something is legal or illegal doesn't mean shit because there's a reason those laws came into being and those reasons are typically not without the influence of political parties wielding power and trying to get money and trying to gain something. And I'm so sick of seeing this pattern. And we see this pattern today, today, across the entire world, not just the U.S. 
especially right now, I think especially about these laws around abortion rights and the punishment for people seeking abortions right now in the U.S. And I don't think that it's much different sometimes than it was back in 1661 Scotland. And I just believe that we can do better. To learn more about Beatrix Leslie of Dalkeith, see paintings of her and quotes from this episode, head on over to broadsyoushouldknow.com. While you're there, you can click on over to the About page and read more about me, my bio, picture, links to my cool stuff, all right there. Are you following Broads You Should Know on social? We are on Facebook and Instagram at Broads You Should Know and Twitter at BYSK Podcast. You can suggest a broad of your own for us to cover. You fill out the form on the website, or you can email us at broadsyoushouldknow at gmail.com. If you're a fan of this podcast, please help spread the word about us. Share an episode with your friends and family, or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or rankings on all the other platforms. That helps new listeners to find us. It really does. Broads You Should Know is produced by me, Sarah Gorski, and edited by Chloe Skye, with original music by Darren Callahan. Finally, if you really enjoyed this episode about Beatrix Leslie of Dalkeith, then I highly recommend you check out the other episodes in this series. We have Half Hanged Mary, Hypatia, The Broads of the Salem Witch Trials, and I do also recommend you check out The Night Witches. They were not accused witches, but they did turn the tide of World War II, and they are called The Night Witches, so I always like to mention them here. See you next week for another Broad You Should Know.